Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Einen wunderschönen guten Morgen allerseits. Bonjour, bonsoir and hola. Thank you very much for downloading the Never Strays Far podcast with myself, Ned Bolting, and David Miller. It's brought to you in association with the two companies we both founded and of which we are enormously proud. Chapter 3 and The Roadbook. So, enjoy. Ciao, ciao. Hello, David. You are... Where are you? I've lost track of where you are. I'm in Champery, which is a little village in the Swiss Alps in Romandy, uh, just here with my family having a... But actually, probably our only annual holiday, because we never actually go on holiday anywhere. So we just come here because um, Nicole's family have always been coming here. So it's nice. I've learned to ski. So that's new. <laughs> Mate, you're just expanding the sporting repertoire with each passing month, aren't you? You'll be into table tennis next and sort of <laughs> Never. sailing or something. I don't know. That's incredible. So, uh, what do you like? What do you like on the skis? Are you any good? Uh, I don't know. I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, my expectations are quite high. Though my, I, I had an instructor for the first couple of days, and he said within five minutes, "Have you done sport before?" <laughs> uh, oh, what in a good way? In a good like, way. Uh, wow, so that was so okay. that boded well. So, and then yeah, no, I, I, I've. Kind of adapted relatively quickly, but then plateaued. So the kind of the beginner's mindset and sort of general predisposition to sport paid yep. off r very well in the first two to three hours, and then I'm just kind of it's going to take a lot longer than to get any better, I think. But yeah, okay, it's, it's, cool. it's a weird. Sport. And you haven't you haven't broken any legs or arms? No, or I've had like some that, yeah. I had some pretty heavy crashes. Okay, um, yeah, um, pretty stupid actually. I'm kind of forgetting I'm 43. I'm like a 15-year-old out there. Just, I always went jumping and crashed and had a high-speed crash yesterday where I slipped about 100 meters. So I've just, I just decided to rein it all back in oh. and remember that I'm 43 years old and I shouldn't I would love to have seen that. Are there any family videos of that crash? Uh, there videos? is of the jump. I'll show it to you. It's comical. <laughs> I'd love to see it's that. It's so bad. <laughs> I look terrible. There's nothing glorious about it. Brilliant. Yeah. I'd love to see that. Uh, um, what about you? So... I have been. Uh, what have I been doing? Crikey! Uh, you've literally caught me on the hop. Oh, I've been. I've been doing a bit of um, pre-publicity work for. Uh, actually, I've been doing a bit of writing for my theatre show in the um, in the autumn. So I've started to put some thoughts together for that, and they're pretty ambitious and pretty odd, as you might imagine. Very um, good. And we've been kind of putting together publicity shots and uh, finalising the tour dates and everything, which in a few weeks' time we are going to announce, and the tickets will be on sale and all that sort of thing. Uh, other than that, David, I've been chivying along the various um uh contributors to the roadbook um which uh for 2020 which threatens from where i'm standing right at the moment potentially to be quite a slim volume yeah um yeah it's true uh, it's looking like a lot of stuff's going to be cancelled isn't it all of a sudden it's taken a really serious turn hasn't it um uh, you know I, i'm due to be going over to work um for RCS, uh, for the race organisers at uh, Stradibianchi. I'd normally do Terreno Adriatico as well, but I'm going to be working with you instead on Paris-Nice. 
but then I'm due to go back to Milan San Remo and of all those three races I think um I, you know I think Milan San Remo is the, is the most likely to fall by the wayside at the moment um Stradibianchi being that it's based around Siena is a, a couple of hundred miles kind of south of where the epicenter is in Veneto and Lombardia but Milan isn't you know and um already Maro Venyi has said uh, that there is no plan B. You can't just move it so that it becomes Genoa San Remo or anything. You know, they've got hotels booked. They've got everybody arriving in Milan. It has to be a big city to accommodate that size of Peloton and, you know, mm. and all the other entourage. So, so they can't move it to another start. And um, I think there's a genuine risk that race is not going to happen this year. And if that doesn't happen, then the knock-on effect could be um, quite significant. And uh, at this point, I, I don't... I don't think we can guarantee the Giro d'Italia's um, existence in the calendar at all. No, that's a madness. Which is madness. Oh, well. well, at least you and I are feeling okay still, Ned. Yeah, I'm watching. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm keeping an eye on that one, David. I have just been to <laughs> Malaysia and I am just about to go to Italy. So I'm just, I'm just ticking off the whole The spots. paranoia is rife. <laughs> but it is big. It is big. <laughs> anyway, whatever racing won't happen in the future... Uh, we've had a bunch of, we've had that kind of, well, we spoke about it last time we did a podcast. We've had a bunch of racing, uh, thick and fast, haven't we? And it's been really good to watch. Yeah, it has been. It's been amazing. I mean, there's, as we talked about before, there's a lot of races that nobody, unless you're a, a, an in-depth aficionado or a local journalist would know about, or a fan of a particular rider. And there's one rider who we do know who has probably the biggest fan in the world in Matt Rendell is Nairo Quintana. And yes. he has already uh, proven that perhaps this change of teams was was the renaissance he required because at the Tour de la Provence, he had this blistering long-range attack on the Ventoux and set the fastest ever time to Chalet Renard, uh, so, which is amazing. And it does bode well for him. And then he went on to win Otvar on a climb called Ez. So he's... He's in a form that, well, probably we've never seen at this time of year. Now, whether it will continue, we don't know, but it's a great start for him. Yeah, I mean, it is it's it is really, you know, eye-catchingly different. And he's been attacking from a long way out. And it's almost like the shackles have come off of all that kind of the complication of being a Movistar rider. When he was virtually in the last couple of years, he was never the undisputed leader, was he? Because they kept playing this this kind of trident card and, you know, yeah. communication as we understand it within the team had broken down to an extent that there was none, you know. Yeah. So I, I, and there was also something you know, very telling that I saw a picture of him uh, I think it at Audeval uh, Provence and he just looks so happy. You know, and mm. it's uh, and for sure that's it's just a situational photograph that could have happened at any time in any race and made it but it does it that connected to these victories and then seeing him just in this this huge smile you think well that's it's an image we haven't necessarily seen much of in the past few years from Nada Quintana so this uh this is could be what was we, we talked about it last year that I think most of the problem was the fact that he wasn't compatible within that Movistar team arguably nobody was compatible to that Movistar team apart from Alejandro Valverde but yeah, it's yeah. Uh, but yeah I don't know it's going to be really interesting to see and exciting for for all of us who are watching I mean it is all relative isn't it you have to remember that it's only February and it is only the Tour du Ovar you know yeah um and he was you know, if you look at the general classification second and third were Simon Clark and Lillian Kalmjan yeah I mean these aren't uh, races that are indicative of the how this, yeah. the season is going to pan out often these results are just simply the riders who train best during the winter perhaps yep. overzealously and then yep. pay the price later on in the year but but you'd expect a rider of Nairo Quintana's uh, 
ability and, and track record to this actually to mean something rather than just be a flash in the pan. Yeah, yeah. You never know, though. What about, what about, what, sorry, David, what about the other guy, though? The, the kid? Oh, my God, Remco Evanpool. <laughs> He's just, I mean, it's its insane now. So he's now racked up 10 victories since he turned pro. Let's not forget he went straight from the junior ranks into the professional world, well, the, the top tier of professional racing. And he's had 10 races, which for, for the vast majority of pro bike riders is a great career. And yeah. his latest one is he's won two stages in the GC at the Tour of Algarve, winning the, t- winning the time trial in front of Rohan Dennis. You know, and it's, yep. it's he's not, these aren't little victories. You know, it's the way he won in Argentina. Now the way he's won in Algarve against the world champion with Tour de France champions there, Valverde. It's, well, I say it's just been amazing, you know, and it's actually Valverde wasn't at Algarve. He was at uh, Valenciano, which is another race we can, yep. we, we talked about last time. But it's, it's yep. just uh, unbelievable. And along with Pogacar, who was the one that was pumping Valverde, we've got two young riders, uh, arguably that we've never seen the like of before. And they're, it's unprecedented, and they're completely breaking the mold of what young professionals should be doing. Pogacar's uh, achievements, you know, are worth noting, aren't they? And the fact that he won exactly the race that Evanapool has won uh, this time last year. You know, it was the first mm. of his GC successes. He went on then to win California, didn't he? At, at the same age, he was 20 last year. Evanapool's 20 this year. And Pogacar, as you say, he's beaten Valverde to his favourite climb at um, Valenciana. And then just today... He finished second. I don't know if you saw any of it just a few hours ago, David, in the um, Jabal Hafid stage in the desert. Uh, with did Adam you, Yates. Yeah. Yeah, I've yeah. just seen the results now. Uh, yeah. So Adam Yates pretty much run tore him the up head there. off it. Yeah. I mean, he, just... tore, he tore the. It's a hard climb as well. And he went early. Uh, and um, Pogacar was the only person who was in the same bracket. And there were some real players in that race, as there always are. It's a world tour race, let's not forget. Um, uh, and Pogacar, I think, was just caught in a bit of a... I mean, as brilliant as Yates was, and he, he won the he won by an unprecedented margin over a minute, which has never been done on that climb. Jeez, Anything like that's it. that's huge. I know that climb, and it's not... It's, yeah. Yeah, that's an amazing but, but, result. But I think that result needs a little bit of um, kind of analysis as well, because at the moment he attacked, it was unexpectedly early. I think it was a good five or six kilometres out. Um Tade Pogacar still had two teammates with him, Davide Formolo, who was sitting on the front of that group, and Diego Ulissi. And I just wonder, David, I'd be really interested to know your take on this, whether that is just a sign of a little bit of inexperience of race, of reading the race, that Pogacar must have thought, I've still got protection here. These guys, I can use these guys. I, the thing I shouldn't do is react to this move. Yeah, whereas, in fact, whereas, in fact, he should have gone, you know. Yeah, you're bang on. And I think that's one of the things that he's going to, I, I say almost his team management are going to have to, to to gauge and control because he's at that kind of that, that crossroads in his career where he's going from the young upstart kind of just races on instinct to becoming a full-blown leader with expectations. Now, yeah. the dangerous thing is if he, that sounds like he was riding like a full-blown leader with the, the weight of... Uh, expectations and was riding the conservative race where we know Pogacar he rides best when he's instinctive yeah. and it's even possible that he was told on the radio don't go don't wait go, you've got, yeah. you got two teammates and when it's a ride of Adam Yates's caliber uh, you don't hesitate when one of the, and it's I think the the Pogacar we know 
who is the the young upstart would just instantly go and so that's something he's going to have to be really careful with to gauge to to balance that 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 conversion that he's going to go through now from the kind of the what can he do what's he going to do oh he's going to do that to actually know we know what he's going to do and now he's got to just race conservatively and use his teammates because sometimes that can be the the ruining of a great rider like him yeah yeah spot on i think um yeah it's good but it's good to see it was good to see chris froome back in the in the saddle, etc. Um, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, Yates. Yeah, my ter- my terrible track record at predictions, David. Mm. I posted a month ago. I posted online a bunch of predictions about Peter Sagan never winning another bike race in the you know in his career, which is obviously still true. Um, but also that Adam Yates would win the Tour de France. Ooh, I love that. Ooh, and and I kind one. of I took a step back and I thought, well, actually, last year was arguably his best year ever he came within a second of winning Tirreno Adriatico and only lost to Primoz Roglic who was possibly one of the strongest riders all round last year and um and he didn't do much wrong last year and if you think about the way Mitchelton Scott has evolved as a team now that Chavez is no longer considered to be an out and out favorite um he will have a fantastic support team in the mountains on the Tour de France and a parkour that will suit him, you know, with Jack Haig coming into his very best years, Esteban Chavez, Roman Kreutziger, um, Damien Hausen, etc. You know, uh, and with Ineos and Jumbo Visma kind of eyeing each other up and bluffing each other out, I'm wondering whether he could be the one who just benefits from all of that. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see it. I'm a big fan of Adam Yates and, and Simon Yates. I think they're great. And I think it, that would be almost the, the coming of age of British cycling if we had a British Tour de France winner from another team. Yeah, uh, that would be like okay. This is pretty special now. Um, yeah. But I see he's a, he's a great bike racer. He again is one of those riders like Pogacar, who's very instinctive, very attacking, and pretty sure if he was going to win the Tour de France, he'd have to do it in a spectacular way, which would be brilliant to watch. So uh, I, I'm I'm going to back that one. I like that that prediction. You like that? I really like <laughs> that prediction. You can have not I'm so convinced to, in the I'm second one. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Um, bunch of other quite interesting stuff has happened let me just rattle through it um i love this this is a, a sentimental little story but it means a lot first ever professional victory for the frenchman who rides for trek segafredo uh, julian bernard who is a domestique uh, but he took the final stage of the ovar race that was won uh, overall by nara quintana on a climb called mont Farron, which i don't know but you i know well yeah you, you'll have raced up there i'm <laughs> sure um and it's the same climb that his dad won on, Jean-Francois Bernard, um, in 1992 when he went on to win Paris-Nice overall. And um, Julien was born two days later, two days after his dad won on that climb. And that's just a lovely little bit of symmetry there. I think it's yeah, absolutely that's brilliant. Um, notable little ride from Little Ride, very impressive GC win from Max Stedman, who rides for the Canyon team, the Continental team, British team. Um, he took the Turkish stage race. It's a 2.1 race, so it's a third division race, if you like. Um, Antalya. And he's only 23 years old, and he's tiny, and he's a little climber, and he's basically, I think, another Matt Holmes. You, yeah. and, I, you and I first noticed him, David, two years ago in the Tour de Yorkshire. I don't know if you remember. You remember the day that Stefan Rosetto went Yeah, yeah, he was the last thing. one with him. He, w- he was the last guy. Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. He was the last guy from, from quite a big breakaway, wasn't it? Yeah, and, it was. Um, he lived with Rosetto for longer than mm. anyone else. So so there you go. Um, another rider who's still incredibly young from British perspective, still ridiculously only 25 years of, old, uh, of age, but hasn't won for five years, is Lucy Garner. Nowadays, of course, Lucy van der Haar. 
and she took the GC of the inaugural uh, Dubai Women's Tour. So um, I don't think it was the I don't think it was the strongest field that I the, the saw women's that. peloton I saw will I, assemble. But I saw the it sketchy was, um, sprint. It was a very sketchy sprint with rubbish barriers at the yeah. side, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but well done to her because she hasn't won for a long time, and uh, you know, I did hear that she was kind of losing her mojo a little bit. But that's a good result, and hopefully it'll kickstart her career again. And there we go. And other things just to pick up on: Jack Haig uh, got only his second win of his career um, at the Ruta del Sol, which was won once again by Jakob Fulsang overall. And other than that, the sprinters have just been doing their thing, haven't they? And sharing out the victories, which bodes well, I think, for for the whole sort of sprinting campaign once again, as no one seems to be able to dominate the field. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be a modern trend, doesn't it? We've seen that in the last couple of years becoming actually the norm. Whereas in the past, that was we weren't used to that. We were used to seeing, well, we had that, excuse that word again, trident of sprinters with Greipel, uh, Cavendish and... Uh, a big man German. I've forgotten his name off now. He's retired. Kittel. Kittel Marcel yeah. Kittel. Marcel yeah. Kittel. The big yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas now it's it's really kind of so balanced out. It's, it's turning into some great sprints. Yeah. Um, what else was I going to say? You're oh, that's, say, a, that's pretty much yeah. it for the race. Froome? How, yeah. how is Froome getting on? Well, he's just riding his bike. Isn't okay, he? he sat cool. up as soon as they hit the climb today. Nice, just nice. sat up. So okay. that's fine. He's just, just riding his bike. Um, and, um, and that's that really. What about, uh, should we talk about um, my other passion? What's that? Running. Well, so this is a longer, you'll have looked at the duration of this podcast and it's considerably longer than it usually is because I've got about 25 minutes or thereabouts of interview coming up, David, that I wanted to play you that I think will interest you. You haven't heard it yet. Um, but it's with uh, a podcast listener of ours who has chuffed to find out, listens to our podcast and complains that it's not more regular. Oh, amazing. Um, Paul, Paul Sinton Hewitt founded, David... The park run movement. Ugh, I think you've done park uh, runs. I have. I've done park runs, and I think uh, park runs are amongst the most important kind of developments in recent years in British cultural and sporting life. I think they're an absolute institution, and I take my hat off to him. I think it's a wonderful thing that he's created there. So, um, so do you want to hear how it all happened? I'd love to. All right, here's uh, Paul Sinton Hewitt. Right, well, it's a miserable, miserable late February um, Monday morning of all things, and I've made my way from south-east London over to south-west London uh, to find Paul here at his kitchen with an array of croissants and uh, nice bits and pieces. I've been fed with a fantastic coffee, um, and uh, I've had to nip Paul in the bud because you were just about to tell me, Paul, the entire story of um, how this thing came to be. I'm sure it's a story that you've you've had to tell often to the press because I'm sure there's been a lot of interest in it. I've never heard it. I'm sure some of our listeners will have never heard it. But I'm damn sure of this, that a lot of our listeners will have printed off the barcode and turned up at one of the many, many park runs around the world, if not the country. Um, so there'll be a great deal of interest in this. How did it come to be? Firstly, let me just say how happy I am to be here with you today, Ned, and um, to be virtually sharing this interview with you and David is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So uh, about 15 years ago, um, I was a regular runner and I was planning on running the London Marathon. And I sort of had one last goal that I wanted to achieve. Uh, that was a sub two and a half hour marathon, 
with a previous time, 20 years earlier of 2.36. And I was doing lots and lots of running. Uh, I think I was close to around 100 miles a week at the time. And I entered a race and I ran with my dog. The dog ran in front of me. I tripped and fell and tore the whole of the left side of my body. And that injury came at a time when I'd just been fired from my job uh, and I'd had a relationship breakdown. Those three things combined put me in quite a dark space. Uh, I have a history of dark spaces, but normally I can manage them because I'm doing some exercise out in the open and so on. So my whole life has been about ups and downs, and I've managed it with, with exercise. But at this particular time, I, uh, I just felt there was a downward spiral. And I thought, what can I do to get out of this? If I can't run, I can't exercise... And the thing that came to me was that I had a really good circle of friends, and if I could get to see those people on a regular basis, then perhaps I could be uh, driven towards driving myself out of the spiral. And it appeared to me at the time that there was this format of run that didn't exist in this country, where you just pitch up, you don't tell people that you're coming, it's very, very low-key, um, it's always 5K, it's always exactly the same course. And I would allow people to run, I would take the times, and then I'd produce results, and I'd try and do something about amplifying those results by getting them into the newspaper. This was 2004. 2004 was the same year that Facebook started, Google started. The internet was in its infancy. I didn't know a great deal about it, even though I have an IT background. My background was much more mainframes and, and banks and insurance companies. And so I started by writing to my local newspaper saying, hey, look what we did this weekend. We, I got these 13 people who came down to Park Run on the 2nd of October 2004. And uh, why don't you publish them in your newspaper? <laughs> Just the local newspaper. Anyhow, long story short is they just ignored me, and they ignored me for years and years. But I realized that that was going to happen, and as a result, I said, okay, well, I need to put them on the, on the Internet. And one thing led to another. So there was, it was a step at a time. It was a very long progression. I didn't start the second park run until January of 2007. But in the period, October 2004 to January 2007, I got so much positive feedback from people coming down to the event saying, you know, this is just a brilliant format. You let me run with my children. I can run with a dog. I can run pushing a pram. I can do anything. And uh, it didn't, even though it looked like a race on day one, it was never, ever intended to be a race. It was just you challenging yourself. And so people gave me this feedback. I used to meet with three of my friends on a regular basis once a month for a beer, and we would talk about this thing. It wasn't called Parkrun at that time. We would talk about it and say, well, where is it going to go? I mean, I was spending my own money making it work. I was programming the, the system every single week, every night. And uh, it, was, it, you know, it was quite a time-consuming thing. Pleasurable, but time-consuming. And the long and the short of it is we could see no way that it could be a, a, a business it wasn't the sort of proposition I could take to the Dragon's Den and say, look, yeah. here's something you can buy into, you can invest in. It was never going to be that sort of thing. There was no prospect of sponsorship, yeah. um, any of that kind. So I just felt, actually, 
it's a long game. I'm just going to play the long game. I'm going to make it very personal. I'm going to keep it away from uh, advertising and money as much as I possibly can. Just grow it in a format that met. It would always be friendly. It would always be simple for everyone to participate and so on. And that went on for some time. I think I probably got my first bit of money in about 2009. Uh, it was about £5,000 from Adidas. And they didn't really ask me for much in return, but that was it, five grand income for that year. And, but that was the start. That was the start of me realizing, actually, if I, if I can appeal to some business that they've got a relationship with the, these runners, then perhaps it could become a, a proper fully-fledged business. And when did the kind of lighter fuel get, get, get spilt on the fire? And, I mean, you know, probably around the time I started to discover it, and like many people, I'm guessing, I'm guessing it had something to do with 2012 and the Olympics? I think 2012 is the year that people started to recognize, even though where I was coming from, I always saw it as a, an organically growing, week by week growing, year by year. And I looked at the statistics right from the word go, and I could never believe that we had gone past the 1,000 registration mark, and then we went past the 10,000, then it was 100,000. Those were phenomenal days, you know, the tiny little entity. Now we're six and a half million people registered. You're what? Six and a half million? Six and a half, six and a half million people registered. Over four million people have participated. Uh, half a million people have volunteered. Uh, on, a, on a weekly basis, we get over 350,000 people participating. In well, I mean, it's just, it's gobsmacking, isn't it? I guess the UK is still the, 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 the main the main market or is it so global that that's no longer the case uh, the uk is definitely the leading light this is where it started this is where we try things out this is where we perfect what we do this is where the rules are created we're a worldwide family and everybody does exactly the same thing there is no pollution of what we do in other countries we have learned from other countries like for instance south africa taught us that walking is just as good as running. And they were the, the leading light that meant that we changed our vision from you can just run it or jog it to you can walk, run it or jog it. Um, the numbers are unbelievable, but they're nothing like they'll be in 10 years' time. When we sit down in 10 years' time, you'll have over a million people participating every single week, every single week. And, uh, you know, the number of people registered will, will be phenomenal. We're in 22 countries. I think at the end of this month, we start our 23rd country, which is the Netherlands, which is absolutely brilliant. You ask yourself why we weren't there before, of <laughs> course. Um, and we're starting, I think, six events on the 29th of February in Netherlands, all at the same time, which is, again, fantastic, just brilliant. It's a... I, it's an egalitarian uh, enterprise. This is about giving everybody the same sense of achievement by just being out in the open, participating. We don't care what speed you take to do the 5K. Uh, we want you to socialize with your mates. You've done it. You know, you know what it's like. It's, um, it's a tremendously rewarding experience. I still have depression. I get it time to time, and I can often feel down in the dumps first thing in the morning. But by the time I've participated at a park run, 
I'm back to normal again. I'm yeah. back to myself. Yeah. I mean, for, for anybody listening who hasn't yet been to one of these, it's quite easy for you to be cynical about what Paul's just said. But, but w- what I would suggest is you, you actually have to go to one to experience the truth of what you just said about it being egalitarian. My local park run, that's exactly what it is. And it's a, t- it's a t- tremendous appeal. It, it crosses racial divides, which is a, it's a big issue in southeast London. Um, it crosses all age brackets, as far as I can make out. And the ability spectrum is vast. And no one is looked down on. In fact, it's almost the opposite. No one's really looked up to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would suggest. I mean, there are, because it is a race for some people, and they're pushing against themselves. Not entirely true. They're also trying to beat each other from time to time, which is fair enough some fast guys and women, um, but they are, they are the irrelevant bits, that the bulk of what really makes my p- local park run tick is the heart of it, and that is people <coughs> whose times are utterly unremarkable to the wider world, but seem entirely remarkable to them, and that's its great, that's its great value. So the truth is we love the fast guys, but we love the slow guys equally. Yeah. And uh, this weekend I went down to Yeovil Montacute Park Run, uh, in Somerset, and um, I ran five kilometers there and five kilometers back, but in the middle of those five kilometers, I went as hard as I could. What's your t- Everyone's going to want to know what your time was. <laughs> yeah, I ran 20.05. Because <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's, for a lot of the faster guys, as you say, that's the holy grail, isn't it? The 20-minute 20, the mark. Exactly, 20. So I would have been delighted to go under 20. So I've been under 20 almost every single year since I started parkrun. <laughs> but this year so far, I haven't. So, oh. so I'm looking to get those four second, five seconds back. But um, what I was going to say, yeah. at Yeovil, uh, there were a few fast people. But generally, the, the, the most rewarding experiences that I had was when some children came to me afterwards, individually, uh, who you know, going through their awkward stages. They can't look you in the eye. They don't really know how to get the words out. And I had these really lovely five-second interchanges with these kids. Uh, And you can see their lives are changing. They're they're part of this community. They're proud of what they're they're wearing, their 10 shirt or their 50 shirt or whatever it is. And uh, they're no different from anybody else who've participated at that event. It's just lovely. So, I mean, I'm, I feel uh, a, a tremendous sense of guilt that I don't turn up often enough to mine. Um, that's, partly because, that's partly because when I, it's quite interesting, this, when I first discovered it and started to do it, I was much better than I am now. And I was quite close to the front of the race every time. I finished top 10, yeah. right, occasionally. And I did break 20 minutes. <clears throat> now I can't. And I'm so disheartened by that that I'm, I'm in a process of recalibrating where I am in the pack, if you see what I mean. So I will come back to Parkrun when I've got my head around the fact that I'm no longer in the top ten. I know it's there for me, you know, and I've volunteered as well on, on a number of occasions up at our local. Um, so I love it, and it's just up the road from me. The thing that strikes me, Paul, the reason I think you should be Im- immensely proud of what you've achieved, your, you and your team, um, is that... I don't know what you think about this, but in an age where it's quite easy to get into quite a dark space, as you say, in terms of the geopolitics of the world and the way things are, you know, feels tough on all sorts of fronts for a lot of people, regardless of where you are in the world. It's quite tempting to give up on the macro picture and it's probably quite right to get involved in something that you can affect on a micro level on your doorstep. And I think the word activism is probably the word to use here, that what you've done is not just sat and fretted about the state of the world and sort of wrung your hands in despair. 
you've gone and seeded something that means something in people's lives on a weekly basis and and and, and that's why you should be enormously proud. I mean, that's that's the value I see in it. Does that chime with what what you feel? It does. It chimes. I mean, it's it's interesting. You you're reflecting on where we are today. Uh, the fact is that when I started this, there were many many pressures, uh, like the ones you mentioned, but others as well, that wanted me to shut down. People telling me I shouldn't do this free egalitarian weekly timed run in the park. Why? Well, because it uh, it threatened traditional uh, uh, events, running, etc. It, it, it's so, so it threatened the genre of industry where you've got to pay forty quid for the privilege of running in a public space, uh, and you get a cheap, tacky medal at the end and an energy gel wrapped in a plastic bag. Exactly, that's exactly my point. It wasn't just them. I mean, there's uh, you know, world athletics is in turmoil. They have been in a long time. All of the doping and so on and so forth. There's, there's lots of stuff going on. Um, and, uh, and they're in turmoil because they try to protect their traditions rather than trying to do what's right for mm-hmm. the sport. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not the only reason, but it's part of the reason. And when we were presenting this free weekly timed run in a park for everybody, mm-hmm. I remember speaking to the governing body and saying, listen, guys, this format is your nursery school. You should be really proud of it. You should support it and you should get behind it. But that wasn't their attitude at the time. In fact, they were quite mm. uh, quite difficult with me at the time. Anyway, there were people in the industry who understood that it would be good. And definitely it has been. In clubs across this country have swollen through mm. Parkrun's participation. Mm. We see young kids yeah. producing incredible records. And, uh, I mean, just Charlotte Arter just a week or two ago broke her own parkrun world record and she's now targeting the Olympics and so on. So there's lots of, there are lots of really, really positive things that are coming out of parkrun for performance, the, uh, the performance side of things, yeah. For the athletics injury. In addition to which, volunteering, now there is a, uh, there is a an understanding that volunteering isn't something that you do to give back to society. It's something that you do for yourself. Mm-hmm. It's a well-being tool mm-hmm. that helps you integrate with your society and be part of that society. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's not just here in the UK. In South Africa, when we started, there was no such thing as volunteering. Mm-hmm. People got paid to volunteer. Now, that doesn't happen anymore. Mm. So we're changing standards around the world. We're allowing people to understand that um, there are many, many good things about this format. In fact, very few bad things, any that I can think of. This format that, uh, that really resonates with a, a world that, as you say, we're really struggling with at the moment. The whole mm. geopolitical mm. situation, Brexit, you name it. Mm. Lots of things that really worry us. Um, but this is the one thing that you can hang your hat on. You don't have to be, for instance, a uh, hundred years ago we had the church to rely on and we had the church we could go and socialize. But then you had to be a member of the church and you had to be of a sp- certain persuasion. Mm. You don't mm. at Parkrun. Mm. It's for everyone and it's there every single week whether you want it or not. Mm. Um, you, you don't have to be good. <laughs> you don't have to be 20 minutes, sub 20. Uh, and it's the, it helps you achieve whatever goals you might have at the time, mm. which sometimes is just about getting out the house. 
Now, the reason why we're sitting here, I think, is because of an accidental social media collision because you listen to the podcast, which I'm, I'm very flattered by. And the reason you listen to the podcast, which never strays far, as you know, from the world of professional road racing, even though we spent the last quarter of an hour talking about running, <laughs> um, is because you're into your bikes. You've discovered cycling. You're telling me earlier your partner is a very proficient and long-standing aficionado of the bike world and you've got it yourself um and you're off to do the cape argus very soon and you've a number of uh, the ruler yeah. cape ruler thing um so what lessons do you think having experienced the cycling world a bit can can the, the cycling world take from park run because i think they're probably you know there's some stuff that cycling can learn well, it's a very interesting question, and I have been asked this before and, in fact, had to put together a project uh, to see if we could bring park run to park ride. Mm-hmm. But le- before I do that, let me just say that I think cycling and running is complementary. I think that they work, if you do them together, uh, they, the one helps the other. So my injury that I had, I spoke about right at the top, the, that put me out of running for a good 10 years. It was only when I started cycling that my glutes started to work again. Mm. And um, I'm in the best shape I've ever been Mm. in my whole life right now. And it's partly because of cycling, partly because of some physical training I'm doing, and partly because of the running. You put those three together, I'm in great shape. When I was asked, could you bring the format that we have for park run to cycling, I... uh, Technically, I thought, yes, you could do it. And so I, I, I worked on and I proposed a system that allowed you to check in on a Saturday morning, do a little bit of a ride, every lap is recorded, and then check out. The problem with it is it's very high risk. Mm-hmm. So if at Park Run, we, of course, we've got risks and we manage them, we have safeguarding, we have all sorts of health and safety, all those sorts of things. But if you're doing it with cycling and you have a limited space, Firstly, you have to get the permissions, and not many parks would allow you to do that, or you're on the roads, and if you're on the roads, then kids are Mm -hmm. less likely to participate, or parents are less likely to take their kids. But it's the the clash of where you get the Mm lycra-clad, really speedy cyclist versus the, I'm just here to see if I can get around. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not sure that it can ever work you can ever have this park run format for cycling mm. but i think there are other things um t- to be fair i've done a lot of sporties in this country and none of them have been expensive mm. and i think that's partly the key i think how this the club organizations and the sportive organizations work in this country they are looking to do the very best they can to get as many people out in as safe a way as possible and to make the journey as much fun as possible. Mm -hmm. The fact that Surrey County Council are now petitioning all of their uh, homeowners about, or their residents, about whether the ride London should go ahead or not, I think is a very, very dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could prejudice or put in danger all the cyclist sportives across this country mm. if that's uh, if that is prevented from going ahead mm. which would be history repeating itself because a hundred years ago in this country or over a hundred years ago um our own governing body you know the forerunner of british cycling actually banned 
road racing you know so so which formed which actually created the national characteristics that we still have of being a nation of time trialists etc etc so there's some precedent for us stamping on our own good ideas at birth um but but one thing i mean i totally take your point paul about the difficulties of you know the the clash of the faster riders and the and the the non less fast riders the the use of parks seems problematic Uh, from the get-go but the 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 principles um in the principle if you strip away the kind of organizational layer the principle of of uh, park run i think informally in the cycling world exists anyway and always has done it's actually you and me saying to each other um should we meet up and go for a bike ride and it's and it's not much more than that and i'm by the way i'm going to just roll up my trouser leg and i'm because I'm not planning on going very fast. I might not even wear a helmet because it's a lovely day. And anyway, we're just going to ride up to there and back. So that kind of informal approach to simply getting out in the fresh air on your bike and not pushing yourself necessarily all that fast is something that I think should be seeded and encouraged in people's lives. And I think there might be some space for that um, to develop. So I would encourage that on every level at every single sport. I don't think, or not just sport, it's just about movement. I think... Every person in this country, 60-odd million people, every person in this country should be engaged in some form of outdoor activity that involves movement, and we should make it as cheap and as accessible as you possibly can. Mm. Obviously, the higher you go up the, the rank, it can become a little more formal and a little more rigorous, all those sorts of things. But you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think parks should be available to cyclists uh, in a in a preference to motorists for instance yeah yeah i mean i can think of one park in particular quite close to where we are (laughs) we're talking about richmond park exactly i'm thinking specifically about richmond park i mean it's a brilliant park Um, when i started park run in in richmond park we saw about 100 cyclists a day now you'll see 100 cyclists in 10 minutes and uh, there's nothing wrong with that Um, but they're also fighting the cars and i just think a car should be able to drive around the park it shouldn't need to go through the park it's a perfect space for there not to be vehicles yeah Yeah. Yeah. and we need to support people to be the best they possibly can be whatever that is and it's not uh, putting barriers in their way preventing them from getting out and doing something and cycling is intimidating unless you're used to it yeah Yeah. I agree between you and me and our podcast listeners, I, I must admit, Paul, that um, it's quite interesting. You're kind of migrating more and more in your life, although you're also preparing for an enormously long run. You've been telling me a 90-kilometer run in South Africa, but you're migrating a little bit more towards cycling. I'm actually going the opposite direction. I mean, I cycle a lot. If it wasn't peeing with rain, I would have ridden over here today. Almost all of my cycling is kind of utilitarian, um, but most of my exercise is running now, partly because of the life I live I'm traveling a lot so I mean there's something fantastically liberating about just wrapping up a pair of old stinking running shoes in a plastic bag and sticking them in your laundry and off you go and you can wring the kit out in the sink and hang it up to dry and it dries overnight in your hotel room plus the exercise is immediate and it's you know 30 minutes running is like a four-hour ride in terms of what it does to your body seen quite a slow I go but yeah I take your point in principle um anyway you've inspired me to get back and print my barcode off and do it again the hilly fields park run is mine i'm going to get out there and do it again at the weekend most beautiful park run that it's tough wonderful people who look after it all our volunteers they're absolutely brilliant but it is a tough one i have done it two or three times i love it i love the fact that it's 
in the center of the village. Yeah. I mean, that's my eye. When I, when I thought about parkrun to begin with, that's kind of what I envisaged. Yeah. You don't have to use any kind of transport to get no, there. No, and it walks from the streets no. up. Yeah, that's yeah. brilliant. It's also the first time I've ever heard Lewisham described as a village, but there we go. <laughs> Thanks very much, Paul. It's been a real pleasure and good luck with um, seeing how it all progresses and good luck with your, your Argus and your ruler and all that. And your, what's the big run called again? It's called Comrades. Comrades Marathon, Ultra Marathon in, ja- in uh, Durban. And, and this is the year you celebrate your 60th birthday, is that right? Yes, yes. <laughs> you, are, you are a lunatic, but a uh, very good one. Well done, Paul. Thanks. Well, that pretty much sums up kind of what I th- hoped he would be like. Uh, park runs are, for me, I just find them to be such an inspirational thing. I, when we're commentating uh, from London, I go and do them every Saturday at Gunnersbury Park, and the vibe that's there is like nothing I've ever encountered in cycling. There's such a, it's just such a, a positive experience, and it almost harks back to that old school sort of amateur, amateurish sort of view of sports. We're so everyone gets so wrapped up now in Strava, goes Zwift, all these different technological things. Whereas you go there, it's yeah, it's about your time, but it's everyone's there patting each other on the back. You have got people walking their dogs, people with walking sticks people who are just literally running with their children who are five or six and there's such a wonderful vibe and it's uh, I, I wish we had more like that in cycling all right brilliant my suggestion is david when um when you come over to london and we commentate on paris nice you me and paul should uh, should go on a park run together hells yes that'd be quite cool wouldn't it we'll do we'll brilliant. run with the founder of the whole movement all right brilliant um all the best stay safe yep. on the skis and uh catch up with you soon huh see you soon ned bye Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.